This is my guitar. Hey, we're not, are we? This was your fucking idea. You back out now, I tell him you're Jewish. Go. Even ladies and gentlemen, we are the ain't rights or the aren't rights. Either one. Hello there, welcome to Pivotal Film. I am Tom Nolan. And I'm Mario Ponzio, and we're tallying down the 100 most pivotal films in our catalog of films that we've seen. Today's episode is uh, 96, I think? 96? Oh, I feel like we've been doing this for a long time. We've been doing it for five movies, plus an intro episode. But still, it's a long time. It seems like a long time. I feel like if it wasn't the summer, and we weren't you know, hot all the time, and if it wasn't so you know, humid everywhere that it would feel more comfortable. Oh, yeah, but luckily right now we're high above New Haven in the swanky Pivotal Films Tower. Yeah, oh, yeah. Where we're sitting in, you know, plush velvet couches, mm-hmm. listening to a 40-piece orchestra in the distance. That's the 40-piece orchestra, orchestra right now. There's going to be a 21-gun salute later. <laughs> exactly. Um, so we start out every episode, as we do, with a beer. Today's oh, yeah. beer was brought to us by... Mr. Tom Nolan, so he will take it. Um, it is a collaboration between Two Roads Brewing out of Stratford, Connecticut, and Lawson's Finest Liquids, which is a brewery out of Vermont. But Lawson's does do most of their local brewing now out of the Two Roads facility. Like all the oh, stuff of sunshine you get is actually brewed is that a Lawson at beer? Two Roads. It is. Oh, it is Lawson that's beers. why we get so much Sip of Sunshine yeah, in super, Connecticut. Like Super Session yeah, and yeah, all, yeah, that, yeah. all that is. Um, all right. So this is a, what is this? A New England Farmhouse, farmhouse IPA. IPA. Yeah. It is brewed with white cedar boughs and balsam fir tips. And this, this is something. Are we going to become the is, podcast is, that's only doing like beer flavor? Beer flavored. Beer flavored beer? Yeah. I hope. Tree flavored beers. It's a, it's a niche, right? Bringing it to another white pine next. Right? Is that it? We're the, this eastern, is our niche. Eastern Nevada. We just drink trees. The joke being white pine counties in eastern Nevada. That is a, that is a joke. Yeah, I explained that joke. Let's fucking open these. Dink and sip. It's all right. Well, yeah. The first sip is so Belgian-y. Yeah, it no, makes me want to die. It, it remains Belgian-y. It, like, it, I would say it's a farmhouse Belgium. That's not even an IPA. They say dry hopped. I don't get any sense of a hop. I, <laughs> it's two Roads is usually pretty good. We do have a 12-pack of Two Roads downstairs of other beers. I think one of my top five favorite beers ever is the Honey Spot. Well, Honey Spot's delicious. It's a uh, very good Honey Spot. But I, I, this, is, this, is, this is an abject failure of a, of a, of a collaboration for me. Um, being a person who doesn't like Belgians, particularly, uh, yeah. I'm not a big Heffenweizen fan. I get a lot of Heffenweizen notes to this. It's, yeah. it's a lot of wheat. Um, I, I despise Hefeweizens. I really, I can't take it. It's just the worst. And um, this is not as strong as that. It tra- the, the flavor kind of transforms on your tongue a little bit. Um, so it pulls away from that. We have a live Hefe- audience today, and their, their face was also unpleased by, by the beer. So you know you're doing a bad job. Yeah. Mm. But, uh, you know, 
you got to experiment, and sometimes those experiments work. Sometimes well, just, those experiments don't work. And for us, this one. I just took a second sip. Work. The second sip is not that bad. I've taken three sips, and all of them have been equally as bad. I think the thing that sucks is it's just sitting in my face now. That wheat, that weedy yeah. white Belgian, just garbage and, is and just like that, is just hanging out. Bubbliness with wheats that kind of like it, even after you've swallowed, it still bubbles on your tongue somehow. Even though you've you know it's, it's gone, it's just it's like a lingering. It's like a phantom mouthfeel. That's what she said. Yeah. So ultimately, you know, I think this is the first time where a beer really didn't work for us. Uh, you know, we're not a bad batting average. One beer out of six or seven that we've had over these five episodes. Well, and you can get, I'll defend it too by saying it was a, you know, it was a collaborate, collaborative beer. You know, those can be hit or miss. You never know. They're just trying something out. Yeah. And it's interesting enough is that the fact that actually we're recording this a little bit in the future because we've already drank that beer and we're now on to different two roads beers two roads beers that we love yeah road to ruin i'm drinking and tom's drinking a honey spot and the reason you might be asking yourself why why what happened to the first beer is this a podcast of alcoholics fucking time travel the answer to that is yes we are alcoholics but functioning (laughs) um but the bigger answer is earlier we had decided to do the block on lynn ramsey's newest film released recently on video dvd other services uh you're never really here Mm mm-hmm um, You'll be hearing that in the middle. In the middle, but you're of the gonna week be hearing sometime. this in the middle of the week, because what was originally intended to be our A block got a little long and has now become our first bonus episode. As all so good you A-blocks lucky become. motherfuckers, are you unlucky motherfuckers if you feel obligated to listen to this? And if you do, <laughs> you don't have to. You can move on, mom. So, anyways, um, beyond that, I didn't see anything really worth talking about. No, mom, did you? I didn't um, get to the movies. We can say that nothing. We can't say anything, you know? There's, there's a lot of dead air here because the Lynn Ramsey conversation was a good one. And we're pretty tired and we want to move into uh, our actual discussion of our number 96. So we'll be right back with this break. Really quick break. <laughs> and we'll move right into Tom's <laughs> number 96. Tom, do you want to talk? I've been talking for about like two minutes. No, straight. you're doing so good. <laughs> uh, yeah, all right, we'll be right back. Okay, welcome back. Uh, now it's time for number my number ninety six. It is the two thousand and eight masterpiece, comedic masterpiece. Oh, Slumdog Millionaire. <laughs> the Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Those are comedic masterpieces. Revolutionary Road. No, that is not a masterpiece in any kind of thing. I feel like that's going to be a constant theme of this podcast as well as you defending Revolutionary Road and me that just hammering uh, shitting it. on Robert Altman and. Um, James Foley will be. Oh yeah, the James Foley thing. Yeah, we'll talk about that later. But anyways, no, you're number ninety six. Not any of those movies, Mario. It is fucking Step Brothers. Oh, directed by Adam McKay, written by Adam McKay and Will Ferrell. Story by Adam McKay, Will Ferrell, and John C. Riley. I like how they lost a person in each step of the process. Well, I imagine that John C. Riley at some point got a better job and was like, "Yeah, I can't just hang out with you guys and write this down on paper." He was like, I'll help you come up with the story. I got nominated for Chicago. I can't actually write the screenplay. (laughs) I can't have a screenplay credit on my Wikipedia that includes Step Brothers. Um, It stars Will Ferrell as Brendan Huff, John C. Riley as Dale Doback, 
They are the stepbrothers of their respective parents, played by Richard Jenkins and Mary Steenburgen. Richard Jenkins John, is John T. Reilly. John T. Reilly's dad. dad. And um, by process of elimination, you dumb motherfuckers. Will Ferrell is Mary Steenburgen. We are anti-audience today. Um, and the story, I guess, as much as there is a story, is that uh, Robert Dobak and Nancy Huff... Um, in their later years, I guess they're, there's, I think they're supposed to be like their mid sixties, but I think they're in their mid fifties when they made this movie. They had to have been, um, to get remarried and they both, Jenkins is 61 when he did this and yeah, so they were both in their fifties. Yeah. Steam merges in her 55. Yeah. Um, they get married, which means that they're adult for 39 and 40 year old respectively sons uh, who still live at home with them are placed in the same house as stepbrothers and it's a real comedy that's, of errors that's the end of the story and then they do things to each other and they do things to other people and Adam Scott arrives and he's married to Catherine Hahn um, Alice and they have two kids and those they sing Acapella harmonies in the car for no no reason together. Sweet child of mine. Sweet child of mine. Um, and Which I mean, narratively is a interesting way of, of doing things. You, you see the promise of Adam McKay as a filmmaker, and the fact that do you? I don't know. I'm, I am reaching here because I do not know why this movie is near number ninety six. Ah yes. But we see the promise of what would come from Adam McKay in case people like Big Short because they are wrong. But that's the thing. I mean, I think is the fact that like. It's an interesting way of, of showing Derek's an abusive husband. Yeah, I, don't I don't know. I don't know if you I don't really know. want to go know. there. He's just Listen. an asshole. But I mean, I think here's... T- I usually take notes, but this time I, I'm, I'm really it's just fucking confused. fucking stepbrothers. I don't, want to, I don't want you to take notes. You should not be taking I didn't take notes, notes. I have the Wikipedia page stepbrothers. right now. Here's the two things I will say about this movie. We kind of talked... I talked in my last episode, 97, about um, Catch Me If You Can. And how, at some point... Um, with that movie, you could trust that it's so well made and well cast and well written and well put together that you can kind of um, it negates the slightness of it, and you can just sit back and enjoy a, like a, a, a professional filmmaking experience, and you you know it, that's hitting all the notes, and you can just enjoy it. Just kind of makes you smile because it's doing all the things you wanted to do. Um, this is another one of those movies, and I think it's like the main movie for me that I'm, I'm all in from opening scene to the end of the movie. Um, it's a kind of surrealist, absurdist miracle. It doesn't even try to make any sense, and I fucking love it. I am in love with this movie. I'm in love with every stupid, horrible joke that this movie tries to make. Um, the other thing I would say is that it's kind of an anti-comedy, an anti-Hollywood comedy, in the sense that it doesn't have a real story, and there's nothing to solve. And even though they at some point try to bring in these larger plot issues, like um, Robert and Nancy decide they're going to sell the house, so Dale and Brennan have to move out. Um, You know, at the end of the movie, they get the house back. And they're out of the house for like 10 seconds in regards to the course of the movie. Um, and the fact that they have to leave the house doesn't 
even <laughs> it doesn't even matter. They're at the house in the end. They're just at the <laughs> they're at the house. Doesn't even explain how they got the house back. It doesn't. It's back. It doesn't get at the end. They get the house back and then they put a boat <laughs> and they put a boat in a tree. The boat being the boat that crashed. Robert and Nancy's like life. Well, Robert's lifelong dream. Dream to sail around suddenly the world. He just is like, no, nah, that's fine. I'm gonna do it. I'm just gonna stick in the tree. I'm just gonna die. Alone um, and sad. Well, not alone, but just sad. But that's the and, and I, I think that's the thing that I love about it. So I mean, if you think about, um, if you think well, about, I, think, I think the conversation should be framed, and, and this is where like I'm confounded about not confounded about why it showed up on your list. I'm not. not it's, it's funny as all hell. I, but it comes out around the time where there's a lot of these movies doing something similar. Um, but now, forty year old virgin comes to mind, but forty year old virgin definitely has a narrative. Has a story, very yeah, much yeah. a strong, a strong narrative throughout with mm-hmm. Joe Apatow. Wedding Crashers, also David Dobkins, somewhat of a narrative, but a little less. Uh, it's got a story though. It's got a clear. It's got a very clear narrative. But then there's the movie that maybe I kind of see your point of view that that does the same thing for me, which is, uh, I believe it comes out the next year. I don't have the, I don't have the year down. Hot Rod, the Andy Samberg. Movie. Yeah, I didn't see that. But but that is a movie that doesn't do anything, doesn't say anything. It's not a movie in any sort of way. It, it's a it's a series of yeah sketches, and this is this is definitely a movie that's a series of sketches but put together. I would argue that Step Brothers isn't a series of sketches put together. That it's, you don't think so? Oh, I don't think so at all. It's a sustained. It's a sustained comedic performance by John C. Riley and Will Ferrell through the whole thing. Um, that doesn't ever just dissolve into this kind of episodic, you know, moment to moment. Now we're going to do this, and now we're going to do this, and now we're going to do this. There, I'm not saying that there's character growth because that would cheapen the movie. I think that's the problem with something like, you know, Anchorman. It's, a, it's an inorganic character growth, but that's it's, but it's good that it's inorganic. Sure, it's just, and some of the jokes aren't even jokes. Like some of the jokes are just <laughs> Will Ferrell and John C. Riley yelling at Richard Jenkins and Mary Steenburgen. Like that's the whole joke is that they've said you have to get jobs or you're moving out of the house, and the two of them are just sitting on a couch watching Shark Week with bandages on their head because they're just fighting each other on the lawn with bikes and so viciously that the the town has gathered outside and. Richard Jenkins' character has to be called from the hospital where he works to come help them break it up because Mary Steenburgen squirting them with the hose is not breaking them up. And then they, when they're confronted about their actions, these two guys that are only like 10 to 12 years younger than the people that are playing their parents are just screaming (laughs) screaming obscenities at them. And that to me is... That to me, it speaks to, you know, I don't know what other movie I would want to attribute this to or liken this to, but they didn't even, they weren't trying to set anything up here for like the big payoff. Um, And maybe that can be episodic comedy, but I think the big payoff here is the larger movie as a whole. It's just a sustained effort in hilarity and craziness and absurdity. And it doesn't ever try to be anything other than that because it can't. Because when you saw the thing Step Brothers and you saw the poster before the movie came out, you were like, oh, this will be cool. You know, a movie where they're Step Brothers. That's interesting. But nobody thought it was going to be them stuck as 12-year-olds trying oh, to no, navigate their all. life. And that's what it was. And it was just brilliant. It's just amazing. I find it, I find it amazing from start to finish. 
And, you know, maybe maybe the comment about it being a series of sketches isn't exactly correct, but maybe these micro-narratives. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the scene where they go to see the HR representative of the entire Pam yeah. Pan scene is, is great. Uh, but the one, I, the one scene I love in this film, and that I loved when I first saw it, right when it came out on sure. DVD, and I hadn't seen it really until again last night, um, is when Robert is called back home during that fight between Dale and Brendan. And the doctor there, Seth Morris, uh, played by Seth Morris, goes, you know, family problems at home or family issues, right? And she's like, I don't like to talk about private matters at the house at work. And he goes, you know, nobody likes you. <laughs> and it's, 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 it's this very much this microcosm, this, this, this small little joke that's told has a punch at the end of a yeah. scene that's used for a narrative. And I do appreciate that in the fact that, like, anytime something is used to propel the story, they throw something on at the end to be like, well, you don't really care about the narrative. Well, even, I mean, this is there just to get somebody to the next spot. And you could go back to, um, it's like, a, a very similar scene is when after they're kicked out of the house and they're applying for jobs separately, they're not applying for jobs together anymore in tuxedos um, and ruining it with their farts. And with asking, you know, potential employers how much money they make, um, you know, Dale sits down with um, Ken Jong, who I guess runs a temp agency who like knows a catering company. And Ken Jong is reading Dale's resume and it says, For 22 years you went Kerouac on everyone's eyes. Look, I want to be honest with you, I really need a job. And... I will take any position, as long as it doesn't involve having sex with old ladies for money or bear traps. Those are my two bugaboos. But just that line, it's like, what do you mean you went Kerouac on everybody's ass? And it's a joke that's led just, it's just to get Dale from unemployed to the... But that's the thing that I love about this movie, is that that joke doesn't get him anywhere. It's just a joke, and we've all, like... I mean, but it is there for a narrative purpose, because they need to find a way to get him... No, no, but a I'm job saying, to be. But that's what the scene does. The yeah. joke doesn't do anything. The joke is. But the joke funny. is the joke is the. But the you center. think they hide the joke it. is the center of the scene? Though. Well, that's that's suggesting though from, and I think we're overanalyzing it. That Ken Jong was what so. We do? Ken Jong was so taken by the joke, and that's kind of what Seth Rogen's character was doing in the scene when. Oh, they I were, don't think he was taken by the joke. I I, I think that it's, he gave it's him a, a job. It's a non sequitur. It, it doesn't fucking matter. No, it doesn't. But it's it's needed to be there because they don't want to have a scene where they're like, we need a quick narrative to get us somewhere. Every everything that's used to tell whatever story's in here is punctuated well, that's, with purposeful intent by nonsense. And everything is nonsense. And that's the. I mean, not even just like the moving from one part of the story to another. The whole movie is nonsense. Well, yeah, look at, thinking, look at look at look at the 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 the, the resolution of the climax where um, Derek just suddenly has a memory of of them playing ball together, and then suddenly he's, when he's singing he's transitioned when he's singing opera. Yeah, when know, he's singing Andre Bocelli at the uh, Catalina wine mixer with Dale behind him on drums, shouting out "Boats and Hose" <laughs> after the '80s Joel cover band fronted by Horatio Sands gets off the stage because. People kept shouting, we didn't start the fire and Piano Man at them. And he gets mad that they only sing 80s Joel. Yeah. Which is great. I mean, that's the thing. I think it's, I think this would be really easy. It would be really easy for this movie to be a bunch of garbage and to not make any sense. But it's really well which, thought which out. Is like, which is like what something, I mean, I, I won't discredit the original Anchorman, but something like the sequels to Anchorman sure, or sure, sure. Zoolander 2 yeah, yeah, do, yeah. which is they throw 
everything at the wall, creating a Pollock-esque image that's just noise. And and those movies are noise. And, and right. you had you had a lot of those movies around that same time that were noise. But this is this is that this is a special for kind of, a reason. Yeah, this is a special kind of noise. Which I, I and I guess have you? I guess I'm kind of seeing it now. Yeah, you have you have not seen Hot Rod. I've not seen Hot Rod. No. So yeah, I guess Step Brothers didn't hit me the same. Like didn't it was it was funny, um, but funny in a way that that a long well, SNL sketch is. But I maybe the way I see something like Hot Rod, you know, being nonsense, but nonsense wrapped around some very loose narrative. But really, the narrative is just there to tell jokes. Uh, another movie I did direct for me is, uh, is uh, from earlier, Euro Trip, mm-hmm. a movie that's very much in the vein of a road trip in American Pie, but has a little more of a self-awareness. Mm-hmm. And I think Step Brothers is very self-aware. I mean, just looking at the filmmakers. Yeah, but it's a different kind of self-awareness. So I think they're self I think they're self-aware in the sense from a, a pre-production standpoint in the sense that they weren't going to do the thing that a lot of those other comedies were doing, which is to kind of set a larger set a larger narrative premise in the form of a plot that kind of directs where this is going to go. It literally just was a movie that they the idea the premise of it seemed to exist for the sole purpose of finding a way to put um, John C. Riley and Will Ferrell in a bedroom together. Yeah. Where they're talking about how much they want to kill each other and, you know, are making fun of their parents. And the only scene that, like, usually those types of movies try to carry some gravity at some point just to have a narrative turn. Mm-hmm. Um, and that this film demonstrates that mechanically in the fact of when you know, Richard Jenkins and Mary Steenburgen have decided to divorce. But that still has no moment to resonate. It just is there. We've mentioned this before. But it's just used as as a mechanic. Right, and that moment forces, you know, um, Brennan and Dale to kind of reevaluate their lives and and take a step in the right direction. But, you know, the evidence of that on the screen is Dale deciding he's going to balance his checkbook while not wearing his authentic movie quality Chewbacca mask. Are, are Brennan spending a good long hour over his 1040EZ? Or Brennan wiping his ass with his bath oh, mat. Oh, yeah, the bath mat. Going yeah, to, that's, that's, the better, that's the better image of that. And then going to Costco and buying a huge thing and then pumping his fist in and the, the air. The very... I love, I love Will Ferrell's face in that scene just as, like, utter pride yeah. before he even does the fist pump. Well, just... And I think this, I think a lot of the self-awareness comes from comes from what they're willing to do. So the stuff that doesn't make any sense. So like we already talked about um, Derek and Alice and their kids driving over to dinner, um, you know, went to Robert and Nancy's house for the first time after Robert and Nancy get married. And they're singing Acapella Sweet Child of Mine for no reason. I guess it's, a, I guess it's an it's example. It's an introduction, yeah. Of, of, you know, this is how he controls his family. But it's the most absurd way ever no, exactly. to do that thing. Um, and it's just, but it's a show. I think, I th- and the reason I brought that up is it shows a very carefully. There is a, a careful consideration to what they're doing. I mean, sure. it isn't well. And I would point a to, lot of films. I think will just do like Napoleon Dynamite's an example of a film. I think that throws a lot of shit at the wall, and is like got really well received, but it doesn't carry anything with it. It doesn't do anything. But not, this throws a lot of shit at the wall because they put the framework up. They, they put a film behind it and they're not, as capable filmmakers. See, and I don't, and, but they're also, in those movies, I don't think taking any chances. No, so yeah, this movie, right. I think, takes a lot of chances in the sense that, like, if, if a viewer 
doesn't want to engage with a movie in this way. They just can't. Like well, I know, movie, I know lots of people that fucking hate this movie. This movie was not critically well received. But I actually think so. It's been ten years now, and it seems but like now, there's yeah. been a renaissance now oh, where definitely. this is becoming like the touchstone comedy of that era. No, you don't see. You don't really see the conversation about. You see, forty-year-old virgin discussed in the historical perspective of opening the doorway to that Judd Apatow sort right. of humor that would lead into like David Dobkin, that would lead into Adam McKay. Mm-hmm. But nobody really talks about that movie as for the humor in itself. Nobody can really quote lines from that movie. Nobody can really quote something from Knocked Up or a lot from Wedding Crashers. Right. Anymore. But like, but anymore, we're, not going, exactly. we're not going back to these movies um, as films. We're going back to them as, as cultural markers, um, but not as films. And, you know, in Knocked Up and 40-Year-Old Virgins specifically, but, again, just in the trajectory of, like, what Ap- what Judd Apatow became after all those things. But it seems like now with um, Step Brothers, because we've lost the ability to do this as a movie, like, this movie doesn't get made now, I don't think. No, it's... Because it's got nothing... It's just too out there. What would you... What would well, you not even that. What it's... would you sell it on that will... You know, not oh. even that, but it promotes uh, a sort of culture that is, I think very much deemed toxic in the modern world view. Like, mm-hmm. like and the movie we're going to mention in a minute, like discusses the kind of man child in the same way, but is more of an expected view of what we see the man child getting. And it's presented and this movie is, gra- uh, this movie does not at all. They don't face any consequences for their actions. They face the opposite. Yeah. They, the they, they, they are rewarded <laughs> for their actions and the movies, <laughs> women, women are used to like kind of prop up the men in the movie, but, it is a movie of its time. I mean, it would not get made today for those reasons, but also it wouldn't, like you said, get made today because people demand something else from, from their films. They just want more substance. And this movie no. is all jokes and no substance. And, but the jokes, if you're, if you're in the right, if you're the right kind of person, which I guess I am, the jokes become the substance. The absurdity becomes the substance. The, the sheer chaos of this movie becomes the substance. So, you can appreciate something like, so it makes something like, um, you know, Rob Riggle's performance in it kind of not resonate, but it's <laughs> when he does his like, pow, pow, and Will Ferrell's just like, why is he doing that? And like, Adam Scott's just completely ignoring it. Yeah, it's kind of like, like what it, is, it is accepted. This is what he yeah, does. This is just what he does. This is a thing that is our world. <laughs> and he says he's going to eat his dick. And he's like, I've seen him do it. He was on international waters, so they couldn't prosecute, but I saw it. Or, or they just kind of like, okay. Later, with with that Randy character, uh, Rob Riggle's Randy, where he just goes, you know, just just trying to purse the narrative, but he goes, God damn it, I don't know what it is about your face, but I want to deliver one of these right in your suck hole. Is there anything I can do to work on that? No, so you not wouldn't... really. It's your face. And I, again, you know, you're doing great, man. This is the Kettle and Wine. Yeah. We're all having a great time. Everybody's having fun. You pulled it off, all right? But if you don't change your face, I'm going to change it for you. Okay. Okay. All I can do is take that in and consider it, and I'll just try to do my best version of whatever I think that would be. I, I don't even hear what you're saying right now because your face okay. is driving me okay. nuts. But it just punches it in. It just keeps punctuating this, this nonsense. This. When I, would, I mean, you would point to something even as stupid and like we're hanging out at the Catalina wine mixer a lot, but I think it's kind of like the full, it's kind of like the most... It is the one part that you could say... Like tries to do... And attempts to try to do, do something anything, narratively. Does anything. But like, 
The idea that they hired a, a 80s Joel cover band to play this thing. As one would do. But that's what I'm saying. Is that like, that's actually like the perfect thing to ha- like that all that late 80s crap or that 80s Joel stuff works perfectly in that setting. But it's it's kind of like, oh, what what nonsense band would be really good to like write in the script as playing the Catalina wine mixer? And 80s Joel is it. Yeah. And the fact that someone wants to hear Piano Man standing out in the sun, like on an island, because I'm going to buy a helicopter, is insane. And is it like the kind of insane that stays with you for a really long time and like haunts your dreams? No, it's just silly. But after everything that's happened, it's so silly that it just fucking cracks me up. I I laugh through the whole... I, I just watched it, and I watch this movie frequently, several times a year. Every time I watch it, it cracks me the fuck up. And like I kind of, like I said last week about, you know, being happy, there's gotta be a place in everybody's top 100 movie list for a movie that's just like, that's just the fucking shit. That's, that's, that's the movie. That makes me fucking laugh my fucking ass off. Yeah, and I, I think that's going to be the interesting um, path we take from, from this list is, is, is you readily accept those films that kind of like make you happy um, and you accept them at that, at that level. Well, that's, I mean, I'll be fair to myself and I'll be fair to your comment is that like after this, there's not a lot of movies. There's a lot of fucking downers on my list. Oh, you know yeah. what I mean? We've, there's we've some seen, heavy, there's some you know, heavy, heavy shit. Clean shaven did not resonate with the the sense of, of mirth that, that you would say. Was not smiling yeah. once through clean shaven. <laughs> um, but the I, only person who does is, is somebody who gets off to fingernails being taken off. Yeah, but we're gonna talk so about. I I did. We're both gonna talk about movies later in our list. <laughs> And he lined all of them up on his dashboard. Yeah. Um, we're both going to talk about movies on this list that um, are going to make me, that I lose my mind laughing at, um, but are, are arguably more valuable as film than this is. Well, but um, no, no, the, reason, the point I was trying to make, though, is, is I think the, the interesting divergence between me and you in our list is that, is that you're willing to kind of like accept those movies that make you laugh. And, and that are that are make you if, if they be an action movie like give you that kind of adrenaline rush or if they're a comedy give you uh, that moment that kind of joy of that, that, that they're, they're saccharine yeah. they're, they're saccharine they, they give you that sugar rush um, and I think a lot of those films are on my list uh, and where we diverge is, is I always try to look when I first see them and, and even now I try to see the reason why and, oh, and, yeah. I, and I, I, that's going to be the interesting kind of like juxtaposition between our way of viewing film is that I'm always looking for the reason, the why, and you're just sure. like the, the what. But I would argue that this is, I mean, and this isn't true, I don't think, of all of my movies, and I don't think that's true of all of the movies on my list, but I think... Oh, no, 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 I'm just saying, I'm just saying those for, movies that are... The why for this one? The interesting... The why for this one is because it's fucking funny. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, that's, that's, and I knew when I saw this movie in theaters, the first time I saw this in theaters, I was like, that movie was, that hit all of my buttons. All of my comedy buttons, it hit all of them. It is, it is nonsense. It is not a film. Which you I know think, what I mean? It is a, it is a, a fun movie for who, people that like this stuff. Which I think is a point to touch on is, is, you know, there's a lot of movies that we will point out. We just talked about Napoleon Dynamite. And we will point out as movies that we do not really find funny, that we don't think are doing anything. Mm-hmm. But... I'd say both me and you agree that we appreciate those movies that do touch you in the way that 
you do respond to it as it's just funny. Or I see something and I just say, it's a great action film. And maybe I look for the reason why. Yeah. But if a movie like Napoleon Dynamite or a movie of that sort kind of hits you in that way, it's it's perfectly reasonable to be like, that. that's the reason it's here. But I would argue, If it's doing something, if it's bringing you that sort of level yeah, yeah, of yeah. joy, then it, it matters. But I would argue... Too though, again, you know, if we compare Napoleon Dynamite and this, I would. Argue, oh, I'm just bringing Napoleon Dynamite. No, no but I think that's a, actually a fair comparison example. because a lot of people think that's really funny. But I would argue that this movie does what what this movie does differently than something like Napoleon Dynamite is that this movie doesn't pretend to be something it's not. This movie says in the first ten seconds of its existence, this is what this movie is, and if you're not on board for the whole the whole thing, then I don't got any time for you. Well, yeah. Napoleon Dynamite tries to be cute and it tries to be kitschy. And it tries to be different, quote unquote. And because they're, they're both speaking, I think they're both speaking. They're both speaking to to very different audiences. You know, like in the end, in the end, yeah. what they resonate with is is it's different people. But all of those movies. Oh no, he did. All of those movies tried to do the same thing that every other comedic movie does, which is try to establish a plot, try to establish a narrative, and try to write jokes around the narrative. But I think in this instance. They, the narrative came second to the premise and the jokes. You know, how do we get, and, and how was, do we get Will Ferrell and John C. Riley sleepwalking together? How do the, we get Will Ferrell and John C. Riley kicking pumpkins in a fucking garage together? And there wasn't, like, layers, too. There, no. like, like Something like Anchorman that we mentioned has that layer of, of Will Ferrell very much playing that wrong burgundy character. Whereas Step Brothers kind of just feels like an extension of Will Ferrell. Yeah, they kind of stripped all the character out of it, and they're just like, imagine Will Ferrell you not and, being an adult, right? Imagine you and John C. Riley are stepbrothers, and your parents are only ten and twelve years older than you. Imagine what that would be. Imagine what that would be like, and then make a movie. I mean, you're really just watching John C. Riley and Will Ferrell be, yeah, extensions of all the other characters that they ever did. Like, like the the undercurrent, the un, the, the 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 spine. Of all the characters they've done before. Well, I'm just thinking of the scene before um, before Nancy and Brennan move in when um, Dale's talking to Robert about, like, what if... All right. Here's a scenario for you, Dad. Suppose Nancy sees me coming out of the shower and decides to come on to me. I'm looking good. I've got a luscious V of hair going from my chest pubes down to my ball throat. And she takes one look at me and she goes... Oh my god. I've had the old bull. Now I want the young calf. And she grabs me by the wing. Shut the fuck up! Yeah, <laughs> Just like... But I think to wrap it up, like that's why this is one of your pivotal films, is like the fact that you there are all those movies that are eminently quotable and you're quoting it right now, removed from the film, and you're just laughing your oh, ass off. It's just great. And it's just I think that's and I just because it's it's just so dedicated to that style of humor. They no they don't deviate it for one second from it for one second and try to make it more than it is. Yeah. It's just it's it's a commitment it's, to, to what they're doing. It's and it's it's a miracle. So that was Tom's number 96. And similarly I think with my number 96 is for me, film and all like our art in general has the most importance when it has an emotional impact. Mm-hmm. When it, when it, beyond all the layers, it, it, it hits you somewhere, whether it be in the gut, where it makes you cry, where it does something to you, it, it does something. Um, for example, there, there's a movie that I have a long standing reservation with in the sense that's a bad movie, 
but I actually own it. And that movie is the 2006 Adam Sandler's Click, in that there is a a scene where he's talking to his father, Henry Winkler. Um, It's the last time he's able to talk to him because he's been fast-forwarding through his life, and it's the only moment he has. It's the last moment before his father has died. And that scene just made me ball. And that is why it's my number 96. (laughs) Just kidding. My number 96... Uh, that movie, that, that is a reason why, though. But the, the, I do have an emotional connection to that movie, but nothing of an intellectual connection. It's not a good movie. Mm-hmm. But it did hit me emotionally. And this is a movie that similarly does that. And it's 2015's Green Room, written, by, written directed by Jeremy Solianet. Uh To briefly explain, it is a thriller-slash-horror film um, about a wanderlust punk band down on their luck and just kind of wading through life going from venue to venue playing their music looking to break out in success but having really no vision of what that means having no real path in life and so they they have a, a quick little radio conversation um with with a very small what could basically be an online radio host who gives them a gig mm-hmm. at a neo-Nazi uh, bar. They play the gig. They they famously <laughs> push buttons to kind of establish themselves as a protagonist. They play uh, you know, Nazi Punks Must Die by Dead Kennedys. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a lesser film, that would, that would be the driving action. Instead, they're just, you know, given the money and told to leave. Uh, Anton Yelchin in one of his last performances playing Pat goes to grab Sam, uh, paid by Ali uh, Shakat's phone, and sees that a murder has been committed. And then from there, they are forced into the green room and a very traditional, but a perfectly orchestrated and perfectly framed horror film takes place. Mm-hmm. There's several reasons this movie shows up on my list. Um, we talked previously about Solianne's Blue Ruin. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was the second film in what is called his Clusterfuck trilogy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first film was 2011's Murder Party, followed by 2013's Blue Ruin, and finally by Green Room. Uh, and this movie frames the narrative of a horror perfectly, a slasher film to me perfectly. You have your incompetent protagonists, but you have your incompetent protagonists justifiably earned to me. Um, meaning what? Meaning in the fact that the Eating Rights, the band, is, is established early on as having no vision. There's, there's no attempt at competency. The movie opens with them waking up in the middle of a cornfield, having run out of gas, almost run out of a battery, mm-hmm. fallen asleep on the road. They do not have enough money to get new get to get more gas. They have no plan, nothing in any way to even function in the day to day life. So they go siphon gas to get to this radio show. Mm-hmm. At the radio show, they're asked a very simple question of their desert island band, and they can't even answer that. They answer it with the most stylized kind of like euphoric choices in the sense of. What we think our audience would like, or what what we think the punk rock. Well, they also have be. no social media presence. Yeah, they have no social media. And they, they, and, and they say it in a very kind of 
wanting to be hipster ironic way of, you know, that's not what we do. Yeah, and I think that plays into um, that idea that they don't know where they're going. They don't know where they're going. um, Sonne doesn't make any um, attempt to try to um, uh, stage this in the past or anything like that where that stuff doesn't exist. It clearly exists. Digital recorders exist. You know, the internet exists. She's on her iPhone the whole time. Um, all this stuff exists. Yeah, they she's just, happy that she has enough juice. Like you said, they they pretentiously choose to, um, you know, they, they very, to not engage with with social media on, on any level. And then they very aggressively choose to play, you know, the the Nazi punks must die mm-hmm. in front of a crowd they know they will try to elicit a reaction from, which is, you know, it's it's definitely a setting that does that that unveils itself as the film progresses. A setting that where that wasn't a wise choice. So they're they're purposely antagonizing. With, with no real reason. Um, they get in the green room. They, they luckily get out of the situation. Then they happen to just forget their phone in the room, and that's what sets off everything. God damn it! They didn't lock the door. You didn't lock the door! No, don't talk and don't touch them! Stay put. It's fine. Just give me a minute! Something terrible. And then from there... They make a series of choices that leads to the deaths of most of the band members and some other people. Mm-hmm. And in a lesser horror film, uh, those incompetencies would have been, I believe, infuriating to the audience. But Solian A. spends his entire first act establishing how incompetent these these characters are, but also humanizing those characters and their incompetency. Yeah. That it then leads itself to to being an acceptable narrative. Conversely, the neo-Nazis, despite being all their pretenses of being just these very grungy, dirty individuals, their their bar is is, you know It's covered in graffiti. Covered in graffiti. But still, like he uses those framing choices and um, you know, cinematography Sean Porter uses those those framing choices of like keeping the lighting the same, keeping the color palette the same, that very green palette to to establish a sense of order and those antagonists especially led by darcy played by uh, patrick stewart just masterfully by patrick stewart for me i have a feeling there's from your face there's going to be an interesting turn in how you feel about this movie i'd say um (laughs) i liked i mean I, i liked it but the antagonists have everything plotted out and so it's it's two opposing forces and it's there's 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 a great speech for me uh, by by Pat um, Anton Yelchin where he talks about the and maybe it's a bit on the nose talking about the the paintball competition. I don't think it's on the nose. I think it's a good speech. Yeah, um, given our given our conversation from Lynn Ramsey earlier, maybe maybe maybe, well, maybe think, our expectation of what is on the nose. And I want you to finish, and then I'll kind of I can kind of talk about why I think it's a good speech because I don't think it's actually on the yeah. nose. And there's there's several points anything. I have. I just want I just kind of want to. Do yeah, this yeah. first one, and then we kind of had that conversation. Um, you know, he says like we didn't know what to do, um, and eventually one of our friends just kind of like lost his shin and said this, and then he took him by surprise, and that's one hundred percent happens in this movie. Um, Ryan Holinger had had a YouTube video uh, about Green Room called "Dub Decisions Matter," talking about how how this this fault in groupthink is is important to horror films. Um, 
organizational psychologist Nicole Lipkin also says, you know, groupthink undermines the long-term viability of a team as bad decisions pile up. And I, I think there's there's a conscientious choice here. And this is why I appreciate this. As, as somebody who I think we've established just adores horror films, mm-hmm. I adore the fact that this is a horror movie that conscientiously knows what it is, that knows it's a slasher movie at its core, okay. but makes and makes, does not really break from the trend too much. There's, there's, there's some subversions that I'll talk about later. But this follows the synopsis of the horror film, but does so by excusing the tropes of the horror movie, justifying those tropes. Mm-hmm. And, like and that's, that's, that's one of the... The, 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 the incompetence of the protagonist. The incompetence of the protagonist and, and the ability of the antagonist to always predict the next move. Yeah. Um, you know, Sully and I said, said in a interview with Slash Film, we're, we're used to having our cinematic selves, the characters we watch, having some kind of skill set. But when you just let people be people, it's a flaying clusterfuck. Yeah. And I think this film earns that. They, it earns the fact that you have these highly competent villains having an agenda and having a reason and having time to plan, facing up against these individuals who are kids still, who are grossly incompetent. Yeah. But and think, that's the reason. That's the first. That's the first main reason. And I think we should have, open up the floor, like the floor. Let's open up the floor of questions. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I feel like, I feel like I've controlled this a bit. Um, but that's the reason initially why this movie spoke to me. Is just it is to me the perfect example of the traditional slasher. So you like horror? Horror is your th- is your thing. Horror. So yeah. when you see it done well and also different and also kind of excitingly, um, it really kind of resonates yeah it's no, gonna exactly. resonate every time absolutely um i think so i think you're i had some like a similar um feeling to you in the sense that it's it has it hits some of those traditional notes i think um but it hits them really well and really interestingly and it i think because it knows and this was your first selena film right you yeah, seen yeah, yeah. Blue Ruin or i don't Murder i'm Party. not like a horror guy i don't really give a shit yeah. um actually the more the less death the the better for me generally um, that's why Passenger 57 is not on my list. Because just so many people die in Passenger 57. Um, At least 56. <laughs> um, it does. It knows exactly what it is. And I think as a non-horror person watching it, I was actually comforted by the fact that I wasn't... They weren't fucking playing tricks with me. No. I didn't have to sit there being like, oh, okay, now what's going to happen? Like, as soon as they locked them... As soon as he walked into that room and saw that girl on the floor with the knife in her head, I was like, yeah, this is going to go. This is where it's going to go. And what's great you know about what I mean? that is, just... is in case you have any doubts about whether or not it's going to subvert that, um, Sam's character says maybe she's not dead. And I believe it's Worm. The, he drags the her. Drags it and pulls it yeah. out and goes, because she says there's not a lot of blood. Maybe she's not dead. Pulls it out and then like the blood seeps out. Sure. And it's like, this is telling you like, no, they are in the shit. Mm-hmm. Um, I will take issue with you on one thing, though. I disagree. <laughs> um, the idea that they don't know what they're doing. I'm because I think if they were a different kind of band, you could argue that they don't know what they're doing. But because they're a punk band, a punk has a very specific aesthetic that he's trying to achieve at all times. 
And so, that's all in A's trying to achieve? No, no, no. Like the band and the, okay. and the thing. So they're going to say all of their favorite records are on on microphone they're gonna say all their favorite records are a punk are punk records regardless you know the dream of a of a punk band is to live in your van and go from town to town and siphon off gas and play shows and piss off skinhead and, and punks. This, is, this is interesting too because this, this is Soliné definitely mentioned about how much music played a role in like his his love of punk because he was like in a hardcore band and that spoke nothing to me because i I'm not yeah. a music person. Well, that's all, and so like one of the things I really liked about it is that they seem like a band, and they seem like a good band. And I think Joe. Well, what's great is Joe. Um, I think Joe uh, Reese Tiger Callum Turner, who plays the singer, and I actually think that he's the most important. I actually think the two most important people in any punk band, um, especially like on a film, is going to be the singer, because you have to be a fucking punk if you're the singer. Yeah. And I think he sells that really well. And I think Anton Yelkin is a bass player. He's actually a really good bass player because he's really nervy. He like plays the shit out of his bass. I think especially with the kind of music that they were playing. Um, well, what's Alia great Sh- is, is they're pl- they, the, those sure. actors are playing and too. And Alia Shawkat playing that kind of music doesn't have to like do the traditional punk thing and hit a million notes at like a supersonic speed. They're playing pretty heavy. And she her character makes a lot of sense, I think, with an SG. I think she was playing an SG. Um, I don't know what that means. Just letting, some, letting these heavy chords just ring out and stuff mm. while Anton Yelkin who's really nervy he looks really nervy he doesn't ever look comfortable doing anything even when they're a band at their most comfortable he you know always looks a little bit out of his element which we can talk about later um, you know he's playing the bass he's looking around he's keeping the time he's keeping the rhythm but he's also keeping his eye on everything that's happening in the club you know what I mean that's 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 like that's reading his audience punk sort of rock thing? yeah I mean that's that's what that looks like I think you know I've seen a million punk rock shows. That's what those guys look like. Those guys look like punks. I think to hit Solnier down a little bit, I think it's bullshit of him to. And this isn't like a major thing in the movie. It's just like this one scene where I thought was stupid. Is that like they make a point? They're punks. They're they're not phonies. They're fucking punks. Even at the end of the movie, when they all say that they would like you know their desert island things um simon and garfunkel is madonna is prince that doesn't well, mean... i don't think that's like a subversion it's just the, all no, the, no, like but... i think i think punk rock people i, I took that right. like punk that's rock what, people exactly. would allow the layers to be like unfettered right so what i'm saying is that and those things that's kind of like you know that scene i thought kind of related a lot to our lists in the sense that it's just the thing that like punk rock music is their life but you know a Simon and Garfunkel song heard at the exact right time, you know, it, with the exact right quality and the exact right song is going to sit in your heart for like the rest of your life. And that's going to be the song you want to hear forever. He makes a point of saying that they're kind of, you know, they're resisting social media. You know what I mean? They're doing the most punk thing they possibly can. They're resisting social media. They play the Dead Kennedy song and everyone gets all pissed off. And then they launch into a heavy song and everyone seems I mean, to like off. it. Like, I don't think it's pissed off. They get like slightly mad but like, oh no they were gonna kill them you I mean think so? but that's traditional that's traditional like english punk stuff so or like skinhead punk stuff so if, if like the replacements who were an 80s uh indie rock american indie rock band went in and played a skinhead like show they would actually play a lot of time they played country covers and those guys would throw fucking full beer bottles at them they would light their shit on fire they would spit at them they would wait for them after the show you know in england that happened a lot of times there's like a lot of violence around like punk stuff but why why i see i, I, I didn't get because this. it's factional because a lot of punk is territorial okay so 
if you if you're coming into a skinhead club, you better be playing fucking skinhead music. If you're going into um, you know, a traditional hard cub, hardcore club, you better be playing some hardcore fucking music. Um, at least in the seventies and eighties and stuff when this stuff was happening. Um, you know, which is what this movie harkens back to is that grindhouse, sure, sure, sure. early slasher, seventies, eighties kind of. Motif. I rejected the second song they played when he kind of fell into that um, synth like ambient synth number with the slow motion music playing. Well, is that, is that what motion. they're playing? No, it's or not what they're playing the at all. Yeah. But I don't think it's, it didn't seem appropriate to me okay. because I think they're real people and they're saying specifically how they reject like modern, you know, the modern music aesthetic, the modern music um, idea. And he's laying down some slow, like some spectacularly well lit slow motion like punk rock scenes with an ambient keyboard behind it. I just wanted him to keep it real because I think he keeps it real for the whole movie. Like, and I know he wants to get out of there after one and a half songs. You know what I mean? He's got to yeah. move on with his life, but I wanted to, I want him to keep it real. I don't think there's anything, unless he's suggesting that there's something inherently beautiful about what they're doing or that they were, the audience was, was, well, what I took was experiencing oh, yeah, yeah. A, a, like a collective moment of beauty. Um, which would be fair, but I don't think he suggests that. I don't think that. I just think it's kind of like a. It's that's too film. That's too filmy. It's too movie maker. You know what I mean? That's too director. Like oh, I just want to like show that I can do this this cool thing here. You think so? Because it's the one I, moment I, took, I felt that way in that I movie. I took that to be. I mean, th- this is definitively the end of the first act. That that's, sure, sure, that sure. right there yeah, is the yeah, end yeah. of the first it's act. It's definitely not. It doesn't ruin the movie for me. No. I think it's good. No, and, that, and that's. But I'm saying it, I think it's. I think it's a very purposeful framing decision, especially later on when Worm asks um, Pat, "What was the second to last song you played?" He, you know, Pat mentions it, and he goes, "That, that was fucking good. hard. Yeah. That's what I did her to." And I think a lesser filmmaker would have shown us that song but i think the reason you get that ambient synth keyboard over it um and there's gonna be another movie later on this list where i talk about heavily about like ambient synth wave being used in horror two movies actually jesus christ mario um (laughs) i have a (laughs) you got a thing it's my brunettes but i think that is he spends a lot of time these these four fairly incompetent but you do feel for them in that, and this is the one moment where they're allowed to be because they they have the introductory music moment where they're sh- they're they're playing to nobody in in the restaurant in the middle of the day in yeah. the middle of the day, and like they they play Noxine Punks Must Die and 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 they get that 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 but that backlash, but then they play the song that the the crowd responds to, and this is like I think that's like they're fulfilling what they do and that they are doing what they do, that there's competency yeah, okay. here. So that's, and I think that's earned in the sense of it well, is earned to like make you feel for what's about to happen. That's the, that's the movie person in you. The musician in me already feels they earned it because I've already seen them play twice and they fuck shit up twice. You know what I mean? See, and so that's, like, to, me, to me to... has not, I, I think it's just, I think maybe that's, that's the fact that like, so they like, like was in a hardcore band, like no, very no, no, heavily no, I doesn't. Know. I think, I, I would ve- not have got that. I don't think I would have had that connection right. to it's the a four. Ve- it's a vehicle to express something very specific. Yeah. But I'm saying that I think it's, if he's going to do something very specific, and like, I, um, and like the idea that they're incompetent, like they're a competent punk band, which for me is like enough. You know what well, I mean? Well, I meant inco- incompetent in the sense of, yeah, incompetent in the sense of what they do. Right. Like their actions, not um, incompetent in like 
their performance. And I think that's especially in I get it. I understand it. I I um I understand why it had to happen. And we kind of talked about this. Well, with, you're just um, saying basically we should have been a little more niche in the sense of like he was he well, had already kind of framed it in already, a certain way. He already he already he should have let he shouldn't have kind of like guided the hand of the audience. Either kind of the hand or like an emotional manipulation about like which it was. It's definitely an emotional yeah. manipulation. But um, I think it's necessary. I feel it's necessary. I, think it's, I don't think I would have connected with them as much without that. Without that, seeing that connection to the audience. That's fine. And like I'm just uh, I, I as. He's staging it, and you like you said, there he is a, a hardcore musician. He's a musician himself. Um, he knows what he's doing. He's not like imagining. He's not reimagining what punk music sounds like, um, or what punk music looks like, or what punk punk music is. Um, but I like. I just recognize like they're really good. From the first two times they were saying it, like even if they pissed off those guys, like they pissed off those guys. Like really, really well. They pissed off those guys so, not because they're bad. They pissed them off because the you need, content. Do you need that thirty-second ambient kind of montage of rock to get from that from that moment into back into the green room? And and it works. Do you think you need that? I, yeah, I I think I do. Mm-hmm. Um, being that maybe I wouldn't have felt the connection. Maybe maybe it, it works to me has. A brief reprieve, you know, a bit of like that chorus speak between acts mm-hmm. um, to breathe. Because cause after this, this movie doesn't st- stop for a breath. Right. Um, once Pat goes a back into that A breath is a good room, way of, of ex- expressing um, that. And maybe to bring up the music point, I don't want to talk too much about the music just because I, I, I'm very... Yeah, I'm, yeah. Not, I'm, not, I'm not a competent speaker in terms of the music, but maybe it's like that, that, that cut in between songs, you know, where there's that momentary pause. Uh-huh. Like, that's what that felt like to me, was just like that second so to gather yourself sense, yeah. before mm-hmm. that driving action that's fair. happens. And, and that's what, I mean, I suppose in that context, it's a good way to do it. You know what I mean? I mean, it's, it's an easy way to do it. I, mean, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know how I, if, I mean, if I was ever a filmmaker, how I'd do it different. Like, I think that's, the best way to, to hit a lot of audiences. And, and Soling is definitely making movies that I think, you know, unlike Lynn Ramsey, who we talked about in the future and earlier, um, he's definitely making a movie for audiences, for, for all, as many audiences as he can. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, I, I think this is kind of like the syllabus to horror. And, and I think doing something differently or doing something that would have um, not held the hand as much, maybe not, would not have worked as okay. well. Um, next point. <laughs> I have bullet points. Uh, so so building off of that horror, the, the reason I really appreciate this film is is just it resonates in dread. Mm-hmm. Um, when this movie first came out, the, the, it was it was known and and Soliné is known for just his his unrelenting violence. Uh-huh. Uh, he's he's a gory director. There's there's several shots where, where Pat gets his hand mutilated, mm-hmm. um, and it's just hanging off. Of it's just eye. hanging off, but it's sudden. It's sudden, and it's it's um it, it's very much reminiscent of Tobe Hooper to me. Mm-hmm. Um, in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, um, where one of the characters, it's, it's a movie I, I haven't seen in a long time, um, gets killed by Leatherface. He gets and it's it's seen as a very gruesome scene. 
He gets hit in the head. He drops to the ground. And his leg shakes. And he gets dragged off screen, uh-huh. and the door closes. And and Texas Chainsaw Massacre is kind of known as this relentlessly gory film. But when you rewatch it, it's not. So no, it's like gory. A '70s gory. Yeah, yeah. And it's not even necessarily '70s gory. I, I think there's there's films that kind of like follow around it, but a lot of the Fulci films, um, there's things like Cannibal Holocaust comes a few years later that are, that are much gorier and much more settled in that gore. But I think it's just what Celine does here is just just quick shots, very sudden, surprising shots of abject gore and and abjectness is kind of a major hallmark of this abject yeah. poverty is a big part of it just just this unrelenting weight and 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 the violence is uncomfortable but it's sudden it's surprising the the weight of the poverty is uncomfortable sudden and and the big thing to me too is is sean porter's composition um when you open the film when they're in the the cornfield it's it's a lot of wide frames you know a lot of open spaces when they sam and pat are bicycling to get siphon gas that's a very well kind of like rule of third shot but it opens up a lot of the background mm-hmm. um and they do these wide angles of them driving through oregon you have these wide vista shots by these um what have appear to basically be drone shots of, of the van driving. Uh-huh. And then as the movie gets into the green room, it closes in and in and in. And eventually you get to this shot right before they're about ready to make their first attempt at escape. When the camera focuses in a half of Sam's face, action's going on, but it keeps in Sam's face and you just see Tiger pop into the shot. Then um, Reese pop into the shot, but it's it stays tight on the face and it's just the walls closing in. And this movie does that so well adjust walls closing in uh paul mullins the playwright says like terror is what happens when the you know the dreadful unknown becomes known mm-hmm. and and this movie tries to keep everything to me in, in the shadows um I, I hate to quote orson scott card but i'm going to do it <laughs> may says anybody can hack a fictional corpse only a story killer storyteller can make you hope he lives and i think that's Hallmark to the dread and, and, and that moment of breath that you get with that, that synth scene is the fact that there is um, the hope of, of, of feeling for these characters and it, it, the violence is there not necessarily to me so much as to make you hope that they live. It's, show, it's showing you that it's a very realist film in the sense of like violence hurts, you know, like, like these people are dying, there's, there's lingering shots, there's the lapse of version, you know, people die in very brutal ways and you know that you know darcy patrick stewart's character says i don't know how you got here or what you saw but it's going to end badly you know you maybe don't have expectations that they're going to get out but the overwhelming sense of dread that i think is clever is the fact that they're going to be made the scene as the villains that they're going to be the bad guys that even these these you you know that maybe they put themselves in this position where they made a series of bad choices to come to their own death. Mm-hmm. You've accepted that. You've accepted that maybe in, in the horror mythos, in the trope, that you, you've run up the stairwell when you shouldn't have, you should have run out the front door. Maybe they deserve their death in, in, in this sort of cliche that we've driven. But the fact that they're not only going to die, but they're not going to be seen as victims, but they're going to be seen as the aggressors, mm-hmm. 
that that the 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 antagonists are going to be seen as the people standing their ground, as it were. Um, I I think is incredibly clever, and then that becomes a source of dread. Is not so much the fact of will they make it out, but will they retain some sense of their their innocence in comparison to to just this, this unrelenting force. Well, that's why they keep trying to get the cops. Yeah, you know, the confirmation that the cops are on their way or that they're coming um, throughout the whole beginning of that that the second act. Yeah, they're you know stuck in the green room, and that's why like even after you know Sam, Reese, and Tiger have died. The redemption for them comes in the fact that they're, they're, they're still lingering characters, in a sense, to me, because, and that's why there, there's that lingering shot of, of Sam's body just on the ground. I mean, not, not only to just kind of, like, motivate Pat into what has happened before, and I don't think it necessarily does, but it's just to say, like, there's still a chance for her to get out. There's still a chance for them to get out, mm-hmm. in the sense of, if Pat and... Um, if had an Imogen uh, Poots character Amber can get out, then at least the story will be told that they weren't presumably yeah. presumably doing wrong that they weren't siphoning gas and 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 trespassing, and that there was justifiable homicide that that they were murdered. Yeah, and and that I think is 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 a clever way to subvert dread. To to and and that's like my major last point. Um, we'll talk about it in a sec because I just want to get your opinions on the, on the dread aspect. It's just like subversion, and it's it's, it's a, that way he does dread. It's only they does dread, and this is is a nice subversion. Well, I think the dread. See, and that's the thing. I'm gonna I'm gonna come at it from a different way. I'm, my yeah, this is it's definitely me as a horror hound. Yeah, yeah, somebody my, who's just like obsessed with horror, talking to somebody who's not. My a feeling of person. dread came from the fact that um, these people were debased, are generally debased anyway by being white supremacists. So like the fact that they're these guys are capable of, you know, the eight rights and Amber are really just kind of capable of maintaining themselves in this. And in Amber, this, and Amber herself is, is definitely like a compatriot of. They all go. I mean, and then by the end of the. And movie, they're still like quasi protagonists or at least allies of the protagonist who themselves are mm-hmm. also neo Nazis. Right. Um, but you get the sense. But she's also friends with a girl that's leaving. Um, and you don't know Erica's what car- don't, Erica. Yeah, and you don't know what um, Emily. Sorry, Emily. You don't know Emily. what Daniel, played by Mark Webber, is really thinking in regards to his politics. You know they're leaving. You know yeah. he and um, what did you say her name was? Erica. Eric. Uh, Emily. 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 You know that her and Emily are leaving, and that's why she gets killed by Worm, um, because he doesn't want her to leave. I guess they just say he found out she was leaving, so he killed her. Um, I, I couldn't tell. I, I don't necessarily. I, she's either his cousin or she is in the band? another lover. Oh, okay. Is, yeah. I don't know. Um, but you don't know what the politics. You don't know what their politics are going to be going forward. If they're going to abandon this white supremacy thing, or if they're going to be alt rights, or if they're going to be alt right. You know, but you don't know any of that stuff. I mean, not not an intention, but that watching this in the scope of 2015 and now, but the fact ain't rights versus alt rights. But the fact that fun. he's willing to help um, at the end after he like figures out the truth. Um, I the think, fact that he's like so willing at first to kill them too. Sure, sure, sure. Um, and even like the kid that goes in with him, that says, you know, after he comes out, he's, you know, he says to um, Patrick Stewart's character, Darcy, yeah. like, oh, they just started talking, you know, and he's just like, oh, this is not getting, this is taking longer than it should, blah blah blah. Um, the dread comes from the fact that the people that they're dealing with. So even if they take off these chunks of people. 
it almost serves to exacerbate the evil of who's of the people that are left. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But even that gets chipped away like a little by little. So, you know, even though it sounds like, you know, Clark says, you know, talks about the dogs being fighting dogs. And then presumably that means that they've been kind of tortured and, and prodded into being evil motherfucker dogs. But right before that dog dies, you know, because he's poisoned the dogs, so the dogs will die after the dogs have eaten the throats out of the band members. Um, the dog goes and lays down next to Clark's dead body. Yeah. Which suggests a kind of... Kinship. Yeah. Um, which also suggests a, like, a touch of humanity. So the only evil that's left is, is Darcy, who they easily shot, you know, three times and he fell down and that's the end of the, that's, you know, well, that's, that's the end of the and movie. That, I think that's, but I think the that's dr- a, my last point is, is the reason I truly, really love this movie is kind of that, but I'll, I'll get to that in a second after I want to hear your point. Well, I just think it's great because a lot of it happens in, Kind of like you said, like they perceive, I think, themselves as incompetent in this situation, but in reality, they seem to be just as incompetent, just as competent as the people on the outside. Mm. So the fact that the dread built up for me from the fact that nobody knows what anybody is capable of. And as a viewer, and not someone that's familiar with horror tropes, I'm not sure what the fucking next step is going to be for the neo Nazis, and I'm not sure what the next step is going to be and what that means for, for you know, Pat and Amber in the green room. Well, the like, thing- how far are they going to take this? Well, and that kind of was, that's kind of what built up any anxiety for me watching the movie is like, I have no idea how far Darcy's going to push this. Well, the thing I find, I find clever too is, is Gabe's narrative. Um, I think, I think the Blair's, Gabe narrative is fantastic. Yeah, making Blair's character, um, you know, you know, it kind of has that, that slight redemptive arc and, and that's great, but what I really enjoy is is this burrowing self doubt and and where he, he he approaches like Darcy approaches him and that's where like Clark even has that moment of fear like Darcy breaks in that second when he's always been in control yeah um but the the thing I I I echo what you say there is is when they go to um Daniel's trunk mm-hmm. and they see the murder weapon from like the year before mm-hmm. and Darcy says paraphrasing thank you gabe you saved us all mm-hmm. and and yeah that that's definitely like the first sign that you see that despite all the pretenses of the neo-nazis they themselves are just as human and, well, that's, and that's why i like that that cleverly leads into the end and that's what i think you know that's the question that i suppose could be asked about gabe or that gabe's character in and of itself is asking is that he seems to be saying I used to think I knew what it meant to be a neo-Nazi, and now I don't know anymore. Being a neo-Nazi used to just mean booking these neo-Nazi punk bands and, you know, opening this club and, you know, creating... And, you know, Darcy even says at one point on the stage when he's telling everyone to leave, he's like, remember, it's not a party, it's a movement. Um, They seem to be kind of... Daniel and, and Gabe seem to be attached to the idea of movement, and Darcy and Clark seem to be attached to the idea of of fear and punishment and a kind of weird, you know, um, self assigned social justice. Well, what's interesting too is the entire driving action for Darcy and Clark is, is not the murder. Like they would have been willing to throw worm underneath the bus. It's, it's the, the heroin and meth, you know, which is, I mean, I got a problem with that too, but that's, 
Yeah, I, mean, just so I, I, mean, I think that's so, that's, that's it's telegraphed. so it's very telegraphed, like, yeah. Do we have to, and that's kind of what I said when I was watching it. I was like, do we have to fucking have a drug lab, like, in the middle of this? Like, do we gotta have it? All of these movies have a drug lab somewhere. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that's necessary. I, I think just a basement would have, been nece- would have been fine. I don't think you needed the extra layer. I, I, think, I think the subversion, the attempt at subversion there was, was to say, like, I, I think Soline maybe misguidingly tries to get some redemption for Gabe in the fact that Gabe was maybe a competent character, somebody who's competent at his job, yeah. booking acts, responds to what he sees well. He's not necess- He doesn't necessarily think the response to um, the, the band seeing the murder was to kill them. He just automatically contacts the next chain in command, builds up the fact that uses the two twins to get the police away. And just leaves the door open to like what the next chain of command. He's he's highly competent, right? But he's idealistically just like Daniel flawed. I mean, he he's he he's got the the potential of character, and like you said, he, he says, "I think I know what it meant to be somebody," but now I don't necessarily know. And that's that's kind of like the the framework on which he's built a human is is flawed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think it maybe is an easy out to maybe step away from the movement itself being the crux for Darcy and Clark and instead saying that was the drug lab underneath to like kind of like establish them as deeper villains in the sense of not only are they not necessarily driven by the movement but driven by greed. Right. Well, he becomes a cli- he becomes a cliche at that point. Yeah, Dar- Dar- Darcy in yeah. that sense, yeah. Um I mean I, I think just just necessarily driven by the greed of um not wanting you know, his bar to be up, up like closed because of a murder would have been good enough. And so I do agree with you there that, that that's, that's, well, I, I think it's a small flaw and I think it's, it's a flaw that's there just to drive the action downstairs. I, also, I think Sully Nate Right. I think so to too. Do. I think it's just to get him into another place to open up, to open up the space for the ending. Yeah. And, and that's, and that's kind of like leads into my last point. Um, the the thing I do like is is the fact that as much as this movie the 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 way that this movie does keep the sense of dread and does keep the hallmarks of the horror film there is there is subversions in there that that kind of keep me with the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, some of those lighter subversions are the fact that there's no character growth really with Pat. I, I appreciate he kind of starts as a man child um, with that desert island conversation and the end of the movie when he's talking to Amber. Well, and he only, says, I think I know the Desert Island band. And she says, tell, tell somebody who gives, gives a shit, shit yeah. which I, I love. I think the only growth that would come from him is the fact that he reveals that he's less of a punk maybe than, than we yeah, thought he was. Yeah, when he says, like, this is a nightmare. Well, and then the idea that he talks about, you know, that they played organized paintball. Yeah. You know, it's just kind of like, yeah. He, he fully, he fully accepts the nervousness that he shows. I mean, you, say, you say the nervy, kind of like punk kid in the beginning but but maybe like you can look at the duality of that as as a film mm-hmm. um and the fact that he's just a nervous character who relishes in his nervousness and meanwhile amber who's initially presented as kind of like that not damsel in distress but supporting woman character kind of like takes the lead and is every the entire driving action in the third act mm-hmm. she's the one that plans everything she's the one that tells them what to do she's the one that kills every single <laughs> every single remaining villain in the last third um 
but the subversion that that uh, you know another small one is, is like Daniel's sudden death when he's looking for the gun. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's just a little, nice little hallmark near the beginning of the second act where he gets shot in the face, mm-hmm. and it's just like you wouldn't expect that. You would think like that character would get them somewhere, not mm-hmm. die from the first moment. Yeah, 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 you think he would get the gun, get him outside, and then maybe something would happen. Not that as he's looking for the gun, he would then get his face blown off. Mm-hmm. But the thing I appreciate about the subversion the most is that that turn at the end where the band's initial reaction and the band like like Soline made that point to make you care about this band so like when they they split up initially it's a bad decision but you care about the fact that everyone dies Darcy says let Reese bleed you know just because it looks better Mm -hmm. so so you care about these characters and the entire film Darcy's been in control and the second anything is slightly turned on him his reaction is to break away and walk away by himself Mm -hmm. he then himself mimics that sort of fear and flight that flight that that the protagonist showed Uh and it's it's a nice like not really spoken or not really kind of built upon subversion of of the trope of you know that they always say like in horror like like that villain always has the one last gasp to fight before they're put down, and when the one last gasp here is is not to fight back, but he just turns and runs, and mm. then he's killed. Yeah. And it's kind of it's it's a nice way to tie it all in a boat, and a nice it's a very to me like I love Green Room because it's a neat film ultimately for all of its yeah. gore, for all of its subversion, for all of its dread. It's neatly packaged in the fact that. Even though most of the band dies, even though most of the people die, they're not going to be, they're going to be seen as victims. The neo Nazis are going to be seen as just murderers. Yeah. Um, and, and the fact that Darcy's seen has the coward well, at the end, I like. Here's a good. I mean, here's a question, I and mean, not that I really want to belabor this forever, but like, what is the social standing of the neo Nazis in the community? Because some of the cops come to, you know in response to the stabbing they don't seem like they're super into these these guys so would they be okay with the idea that they sick their dogs on these kids that were trying to siphon yeah, gas you don't you don't like, know are the cops gonna you be okay? the cops gonna be cool with that yeah you, you um, don't know it's it's definitely it's definitely something that like they think would be they'd be okay well, with. I think, and i think it's, i mean i think you can tell me if any if any of this you know scholarship has been done with talking about there's not been a lot of scholarship the idea of room. like phonies in this movie because how how intimidating a presence really is darcy he's not none and how like you i mean argue I, that I, the, I think i think they purposely go out of their way um but to make to make him look slight he's bald he's like patrick stewart himself is a slight man well he sounds old in it they, they had said when they're first starting production Soliné had gone up to ask patrick stewart to grow like a, a, a good tea mm-hmm. like and and Stuart already started growing the goatee, but it's like wispy and, uh-huh. and wiry and just the the goatee of an old man trying to hang on to that last grasp of youth. And he's surrounded by youth. Mm-hmm. Nobody in this movie film is older than 45, I'd well, say. Well, is that why? And is that like, so where's <clears throat> the fear then, I guess, is in the, like the followers. 
you know what I mean? Like the people that are willing to do what he asked them to the do. The twins, the twins that are willing to stab, like stab each other and go to jail. Right. For it. Which Darcy's not willing to do any such thing for anybody. So mm-hmm. he's doing the easiest thing he knows how to do. Like they've got Gabe in there trying to clean up, um, you know, with a power washer, like all the blood and stuff like that. Just fucking shoot him in the green room. Like the green room's covered with graffiti and it's covered with dirt and it's disgusting. Would like a couple of pools of blood and some power washed walls really be that big of a deal? No. And like they say a couple of times, like, oh, we can't let them go missing. But they've also said, like, we don't know. They don't have social media. Nobody knows where they are. They're in an unscheduled venue. You know, um, they're just doing a quick stop in Oregon and nobody knows they're there. Yeah, it's you know killed I mean? that. Well, so they could have conceivably just killed them. Well, the thought, the thought there from a narrative standpoint is Tad being connected to Daniel, who's already kind of like a, a, a decently standing member at that point mm-hmm. in the neo-Nazi community. I, th- I think Solonet does, does, does a reasonable job of saying why Darcy has to have them killed in the way he does. Well, I think, it's just, I think, it's, I think my comment is more about, uh, yeah, it makes sense, but the idea of um, establishing a kind of cultural dominance where really this is just a, a small problem that needs to get fixed we don't need to establish we don't need to establish a criminal here we don't need to establish we don't need to establish them as the criminals and you as the victim because you just let your dogs eat their throats yeah and there's still a girl with a knife wound in her head and so it doesn't matter how much gas i, well, I think, out I, think of your that, car. I think that was going to be the body that disappeared to be honest sure but like it doesn't matter how much gas i siphoned out of your car like this is not a an these are not your enemies. These are just these are just people who saw something they shouldn't have seen. You know what I mean? Mm. And it almost seems like he's trying to say, like, when he's like, oh, it's, it's not a party, it's a movement. Like, this is all part of the movement. You know what I mean? Like, doing, the, setting this up. So, so you're saying it's basically Darcy uses as artifice. Right. When it's... See, I hadn't thought about that way. It's just kind of, he's just kind of doing all this for the sake of, of doing it because that's what you do... That's to like establish a higher movement. frame of control yeah. over. I mean, they're in the middle of the woods. They could have buried these motherfuckers anyway. I, I just, I just, I just did a nice whatever. little like clinched like lip and tilt of the head to say like, hmm, that's something I hadn't thought of. Just because he's so not convincing. No, uh, you know I, what I mean, as a, as a, as a villain, and unassuming as a villain, and unassuming and unconvincing, which just ultimately makes you not an effective villain. Yeah. Um, like I think they established. Not that I don't think he's effective, but. I think, I think they established Clark as like the more choice. fearful villain because you know they're waiting for Clark, and then when Clark's truck shows up, they're like, "Oh, he's here." Clark is the only one to do anything of physical value. And Darcy's he's, Darcy's just a, a numbers man, and he's shouting at dogs in German, and they've got like a a keyword for kill. Um, and and Clark's character or Clark's actor, I don't unfortunately have it written down. I don't think I do not unfortunately. Um, you know he's he's a he's a yeah. built man. He's taller. He's mm-hmm. he's got the presence of of a, an opposing figure. Yeah. And he wields. And it's funny to think about the fact that Darcy wields. So they both wield weapons, live weapons. Darcy wields these the red laces. These fucking kids, who aren't aren't capable of doing anything, and Clark wields these dogs, that effectively rip people's throats out. They don't want the feedback. But when they're not 
scared off by feedback. They're, the dogs are killing people. Yeah. Where nobody else, you know, that Patrick Stewart, that Darcy sets on anybody, does anything. They just kind of shake and cower and, you know, question things and make terrible decisions as to who they're going to shoot and who they're not going to shoot. Or what they're going to shoot at and what they're not going to shoot at. Um, I don't know. It's, it's it's an interesting film. I get why it would be on a, I do, yeah, on I do, a list. I like do want to say this. Like, obviously, this is one of my top ten horror films in the sense that there's going to be ten more, uh, nine, at least nine more horror films that show up on my list. Um, and horror being such a prominent genre for, for me, you know, I, I absolutely adore this film. I, mm-hmm. I don't know if I necessarily have your take on it um, overall. How how'd you, what do you, what do you leave this movie feeling? It's a good movie. I liked it. Okay. But I don't good. feel anything for it. Yeah. No, I, I think that's a perfect. You know. And I think, I think that's, that makes sense because it is a movie, I think for a horror fan. If I had seen it in theaters, I actually think it was more effective. I didn't see it in theaters. Actually, I didn't see it. Oh in, yeah. In that video. I said, I think it was more effective in my house than it would have been in the theater for me because I'm not a horror guy. So I could kind of sit and just enjoy it as a tense piece of movie making instead of something I spent a bunch of money on. And, you know, is this good? You know, is this going to be good? I'm sharing this experience with a bunch of other people. How are they? How are they feeling about it? You know, what I mean, there's that kind of that that activity that goes into yeah, seeing a movie with people. And what's interesting, too, is like I, I, would, I fully admit this the first time I saw this, I saw this as an intellectual experience, like an intellectual kind of experiment in the sense that I, I had heard, I hadn't yet seen Blue Ruin, but I heard of Sully and A's other films. And so when actually, no, that's not, that's not true. When I was going into this, I had just seen Blue Ruin mm-hmm. four hours earlier. I'd watched Blue Ruin, took a moment to <laughs> marinate in that. And then I watched this. And so my first approach to this is from the perspective of, crit- of criticism, of, of theory. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I do have an emotional reaction to it, but my emotional reaction to it is definitely married with my intellectual expectation. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting hearing that it is just a good film without, without the expectation or that you, you as a person who, who isn't so enamored by horror that, that you, you still said, no, I, I, I openly avoid it. Like, if it's possible. I mean, like, we talked about, you know, we've been friends for a long time. So we talked about like, a couple of years ago when, um, you know, Eli Roth is on the Quentin Tarantino or the Brett Easton Ellis podcast. Um, and Quentin Tarantino was on that same podcast um, a little later. And they were talking about all these horror movies. And I was like, I haven't seen any of these horror movies. I should watch all of these horror movies and just to see what is. And most of them were silly. And some of them were well done. But I didn't have a visceral reaction to any of them in the same way that I will have had a visceral reaction to some movies that are later on my list that you could consider horror, I guess, but I consider more existential, um, like cries for help more so than horror. No, no, I, I, I can understand hundred percent understand exactly that. And by the way, just to, to correct it, it is, this is actually my 12th highest ranked horror nice. film. So, this isn't even my top ten. We got more to do. We got so, more work. If uh, you're not a horror fan, maybe you can tune out for my <laughs> list in uh, at least at least one ninth of my remaining list. And I think, in terms of remaining, I think we can end it here. Um, yeah. Episode ninety six. We're one twentieth of the way there, ladies and gentlemen. 
I mean, you know, our bonus episode, uh, the the history of Lynn Ramsey, the history of Lynn Put Ramsey, that up in the, the middle Lynn of the Ramsey week filmography, is going to be upcoming. Um, mostly just just uh, ultimately our culmination of our, our opinions on you are never really there. If if you don't listen to that, uh, I think briefly we can say it's fucking fantastic. Yep, watch it. Uh, if you're if you don't want to sit through, we need to talk about Kevin or Ratcatcher or anything else by Lynn Ramsey. We are never really there. Is something that's definitely worth a watch in terms of very minimalist cinema, um, it, it, truncated cinema, telling a narrative without saying a lot. No, yeah. without yeah, without saying a lot, but showing it's, a ton. It's it's art. It's what cinema is designed to do. It's it's the reason that cinema is exists. But you know what, guys? Honestly, you work forty hours a week. You probably travel at least fifteen to twenty minutes to your job. It's an hour and ten minutes. Sit down, listen to the baritones of our voice. You probably watched a Get baseball game. a little bit game. warm. Yeah. You probably yeah. watched a, Who fucking watches an nine innings of August baseball? baseball game? You could have been watching You Were Never Really Here. And you could have been listening to us talk about it. Yeah. You could have been. You could have been. Combined? Combined? Doing anything. Our, our conversation of You Were Never Really There and Lynn Ramsey films is and a, all the Lynn Ramsey filmography. Less than a baseball game. Is literally the length of watching. I don't know transform the transform you could do that before you watched all the transformers films and if you watched all the transformers films and did not do that you should question your priorities yeah you fucks <laughs> so follow us at pivotalfilm.com because yep. we love you send us your emails at pivotalfilmcodcast at gmail.com or by this point our, our twitter's up i'm sure I, I hope it's pivotal. He, I'm not going to say what it is, but I'm not even going to talk about it. Like type in pivotal film. There's, there's going to be a Twitter at this point. It might not be pivotal film. It might be pivotal film podcast. I don't fucking know, it's but it's me. there. Um, I'm going to think I created an Instagram just for, cause we talk a lot about, about framing shots. We'll post pictures of Mario's notes. Yeah. I mean, we, our live, our live audience crew posted pictures of us we'll against our against our wishes. We'll post pictures much. of what our table looks like before we start the podcast and what it looks there like. There might be after some ranch. The There's a lot of empty beers. There's a couple chicken wings here. Um, so yeah, uh, all right. That's I it. Think, I think there's something you have to say. <laughs> <laughs> I just took over the last like three minutes of this. Um, yeah, thanks for listening. Uh, watch a movie, drink a beer, and we'll talk to you next week.